today is part 10 of our Life of Worship series, and I entitled this morning's message, The Confidence of Sovereignty. We all know what sovereignty means. It means that God's in charge of everything. There is nothing that he is not in charge of. Now, so I have one simple statement that is the fill in the blank in front of you that I want you to keep in mind during this whole message, and even more so when you leave today, because... Men of God throughout all of history have said some very bold things because of what they believed. Women of God throughout history have done some incredibly courageous things in the name of God because they know something that we tend to forget. And that is the fill in the blank. It is this. We serve the same God David did. We serve the same God... David did. Now I understand it would probably be more accurate to say that David does. Because David is alive as a believer and he is still worshiping God. However, when we think of this story, we think of this as a miracle, something that God did that was extraordinary. We think of, well, way back then God did this and infused David with courage and David was ready. David's a little guy and he fights Goliath and wow, I wish you would do that for me. Whenever you think did, I want you to understand that's the God that you serve today. There is no difference. God has not changed. God has not become less powerful. God is no longer uh, or shouldn't say he's any less in charge. He's always been in charge. He's always been just as powerful. And he wants to operate in your life in a similar fashion to the way he operated in David's life. So let's take a look at one of the most popular stories of all time. The story of David and Goliath. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17? 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses. And we'll pray for the word and we'll get started this morning. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah, and Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley between them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't believe that this story is to encapsulate or encapsulate how you used to work. I believe that this is a story about how you work. And Father, if we do not embrace these ideas, if we do not allow you to soak into our lives, Lord, we tend to walk through this life powerless. I ask that you would encourage us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of what you want to do and the amazing authority that you exert on our behalf. Lord, allow us to leave here knowing that because we are children of the King, everything's different. May you be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the Philistines, it says, gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Now, who are the Philistines? Back at the beginning of this series, we talked a lot about them. Maybe the first couple messages, if you want to podcast those for free, just jump back and take a listen to those. Find out a little bit more. But I did an intriguing study as to trying to figure out what was going on in this story. And really, we can kind of trace all people groups through three families. Because we can go, well, we can all trace them back to Adam and Eve. All right, that's true. However, there's another time when God cleaned the slate, literally, and started over. That was the flood. So we have Noah and his wife, but at the time of the flood, I get the impression that Noah and his wife were done having kids, and he happened to have three sons at that time, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They had wives that were on the ark with them, and so when we talk about how certain lineages got started in different people groups. Remember, it wasn't just Noah's family. It was also the women that they married. So there's all sorts of different things coming into the gene pool. And so we have everybody kind of descending out from there. We know that through Shem, that's where we get the Semite groups or the Jewish people. That's where you hear the phrase anti-Semitic. It's coming from Shem. That's what it means. Well, 
when the Israelites came into the promised land, there was a large group of people, various people groups that were in a land at that time known as Canaan. So all those groups were called Canaanites. Yeah, Canaanites. Very simple. But if you wanted to know specifically about how the nuances and the differences between the groups, you would call them by their most famous ancestor. If their most famous ancestor was Anak, they were the Anakites. If their most famous descendant was Rapha, then it was the Rephaites, right? So it's not rocket science. It makes it pretty simple. The Moabites came from Moab. All right, so it's either from where you're from or the person that you descended from, very simply. Well, the Philistines, we don't know everything about where they came from, but they seem to be similar to coming from the Canaanite lineage. We know that they were a sea people. They kind of infused into the area. So all their stuff was on the coast. If we were to look at a map and there's the Mediterranean Ocean on the left-hand side, which tucks into Israel almost like in a crescent shape, and there's this narrow strip of Israel on the coast down at the bottom of Israel were five major cities of the Philistines. Now, so far in our story, as long as Samuel's been talking and Saul's been around, the Philistines have been a problem. So they're battling back and forth and they're kind of meeting and they're almost equal and they don't know who's going to win. And sometimes this guy wins. and The other time the Israelites win. Well, the last thing we heard was that Saul was about to knock the Philistines out of their territory completely. But he messed up during the honey incident, if you remember that. That's where he does this whole no one's going to eat thing. And then he says he's going to kill his son, Jonathan. And everybody's like, what is your problem? And he completely ruins the whole plan. At that time, the Philistines withdrew themselves back to their territory. But now they're about to encroach again. Because they're always fighting back and forth about who's going to have the land. That's where we pick up our story today. It says they pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. The only thing you need to know about that is it's in the south, and it's only 15 miles from Bethlehem where David grew up. So David's very familiar with this location, it's only 15 miles from where he was. So he knows the terrain, he knows what's going on. All right? Then it says, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines, which is in the same area, not too far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are both south. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. That valley of Elah, I'm going to show you a picture of when we were just over in Israel. Let's go ahead and throw up the first slide. The first slide is this. Now, if you're standing in the valley and looking at one side, that's what you would see, a range of mountains. And literally, it almost creates a trough through these two valleys. The reason why this picture is important is because if this is the location of the battle, and there's a lot of arguments as to what it would be like or where exactly it happened, then it was most likely believed that that ridge right on the other side of the street up on the top where there is a little blank spot just left of center, that that is where the Israelite camp was, that they would have parked there. Now, you don't fight right next to your camp. As a matter of fact, you're going to find out that the Philistines and the Israelites were about three miles apart because you want to be able to back up, get your supplies, then go back into battle. So drawing up your battle lines is different than where you camp. They would have camped up on that ridge. If you turn around and look down the valley the other direction, we have the other slide. This is where the Philistines would have been, just on this mountain or on the other side. And there's this massive valley in between where they could fight. Because remember, this is not just a few guys. This is not like 30 guys on one side, 30 guys on the other. This is thousands of warriors. So you have to have very large places to interact and fight. So one's drawn up on one side, one's drawn up on the other side, and that's when a certain unusual man makes his appearance. Let's look at the next verse. Just leave these up, these slides up while we're uh, watching. That's probably not how you picture Israel. 
Uh, maybe some of you are surprised by how beautiful it is or that there's a lot of agriculture and, and rolling hills and green trees and grasses, but yet it is. Some of it is incredibly beautiful. The only part that was a little rough was the wilderness, and that's the southern section. But a lot of it looks an awful lot like California. Well, let's go ahead and get back to our story. Verse 4. A champion, and that word in Hebrew means a man between two armies, a representative, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, one of the five major cities of the Philistine nation, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, these types of places, right? These are all the major cities. He's from one of them. All right. And you're going to hear a lot about Gath here in a moment. Who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. All right. Let's talk about that for a second because that's really, really big. Uh, we don't have anybody nine feet tall. And you go, well, this is obviously an exaggeration. Well, let's, let's discuss it for a second. The phrase in Hebrew is six cubits and a span. Well, how long is a cubit? It's 18 inches. All right. So it's a foot and a half. So if you have six of them, it's nine. All right. What's intriguing is it depends on what manuscripts you read. If you look at the Jewish historian Josephus, he agrees with one version of a manuscript that's Hebrew. And it says four cubits and a span. That would make him over six feet tall. I am six three. All right. So if you've ever been up next to me, I'm probably the height of Saul. All right. So Saul was the king. Remember, they kept going. He's really tall. He's really tall. Right. Well, when you're Jewish, I'm really tall. OK. Now, it says four cubits in a span. But if you read other manuscripts, it says five cubits in a span. But if you read the most reliable, it is six cubits in a span. What is a span? Approximately nine inches. That means he's nine, nine. This guy is enormous. All right. So if you take me and put three and a half feet on top of me, that's how tall this guy is. Now, is that even possible? Now, I'm pretty much I don't know if any of you are basketball fans, but I'm pretty much assuming that he's not Manute Bowl. Anybody remember Manute Bowl? Manute Bowl was perhaps the skinniest man ever, okay? But he was super, super tall. I think he's much more like Shaquille O'Neal, right? Who's a little wider to basically hold up that frame, okay? So this is a massive mountain of a man. Now you go, well, is that even realistic? I mean, maybe they're just kind of exaggerating and everything. Hold on. This is not the only place in scripture that they talk about this stuff. For example, when Moses led Israel through the desert out of Egypt, they were coming through getting near the promised land and they got hassled by two different kings. One of the kings, his name was Og. Now, if you're super huge, just call yourself Og. It really doesn't matter. Nobody can argue with you. It doesn't matter. They're not going to make fun of you, right? Now, how do we know that he's big? Well, the Bible puts something in parentheses about Og, which is rather unusual. It mentions his bed. You go, why would you mention some guy's bed? That doesn't make any sense. His bed, it says, was over 13 feet long and six feet wide. Okay, even if you're trying to go big, right? I got a cow king at home, all right? I need that for my leg room because my legs hang over on the edge of any bed that I end up sleeping in other than that one. So I get needing a sizable bed. But if your bed is 13 feet long, I don't know how big, because you don't need that much leg space. I understand wide where you just want to keep rolling over. You have a lot of dogs that you want to sleep. You know, I have no idea, right? My dog takes up all my space anyway. Now, I don't know why you need 13 feet for your foot room unless you're enormous, right? When it speaks later on, when we study David's mighty men, one of them, Benaiah, fought an Egyptian seven and a half feet tall. Then you start going through and you say, wait, there's even more than that. When they went in to spy the land, the spies came back and said, we can't go in there. They said, why? They go, because there's giants in there. They're like, what do you mean there's giants? We felt like grasshoppers. I mean, they're enormous people. They're descendants of Anak. When they said that, everyone went, oh, that's not good. Why? 
Because Anak, it says in the Bible, was a descendant of the Nephilim. Anybody remember who the Nephilim was? That's a creepy story in Genesis when it says, And the sons of God came to the daughters of men and had children, and they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Those were the giants. The Anakites, the Rephaites, these men. They were known to be incredibly huge. Another passage talks about a great man that was killed that was huge from Gath, a descendant of these men who had six fingers and six toes. It says 24 digits in all. There's something going on in their gene pool that's a little different. All right? These guys are massive. Goliath, Gath, all the same things keep coming up. That line began to get sifted out. We don't have a lot of that anymore. All right? So let's go back to it. What else about Goliath? Well, he had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. I don't know what shekels are, so I'm going to give it to you in pounds. It's 125 pounds. That is his coat mail, all right? Now, what happens is you would have armor shielding on the outside, usually, but you'd wear a coat of armor underneath or uh, chain mail. And what it would be is little tiny copper plates laid over each other so that you have fluidity to move, but it will stop the piercing of an arrow or a sword point. It lays over one another like fish scales. Does that make sense? That would be what you would wear underneath, like a breastplate or other things. So that was his little metal dress. It was 125 pounds worth, okay? That's pretty heavy. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, which are shin guards. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And his spear shaft, he had a sword, a spear, and a javelin, all that he carried. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. And its iron point weighed 15 pounds. Okay? Now, here's what you have to picture. For a spear, like a weaver's rod, which was a thick rod, that the description of how they were used by the Philistines, where they had a cord wrapped around the shaft. And they had a, a rope to it, and they would hold on to one end of it, and when they would throw it, they'd pull the cord, and it would spin it. So it would go further and it was more accurate. The phrase that is used for the tip of the spear is the word flame. So it would have that kind of moving point. So it would be able to pierce whatever it hits. That head of the shaft alone was 15 pounds. I don't know if you can hold a stick with 15 pounds on the end and throw it accurately. You have to be a pretty big guy. All right. It says his shield bearer went ahead of him. So this guy's job is to carry the shield, right? Now, this is kind of a weird job. You kind of just hold it like, you know, it's probably pretty big because it's for this guy. Your job is to kind of block him from arrows if he's advancing. However, your main job is to hold stuff. That's all you do. Okay, so while he's fighting, if he goes, now I threw my stuff, I have to go to hand-to-hand -hand combat, give me my shield. That's your job to go here. That's, that's really it. Okay, and you hope he wins. Because you're on his team, right? Because then you're like, I don't got anything left, right? You got your little sword and you're like, I will fight at you, right? You have no idea what you're doing, all right? It's funny, David later on was called and is called the armor bearer of Saul. So he's familiar with this same concept as well. Here we go. Now Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Meaning this is ridiculous. We shouldn't do it this way. Uh, am I not a Philistine? Are you not the slaves of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your slaves. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our slaves and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. All right, so he wants to go champion style. Where'd he get that idea? Well, it became most popular through the Greeks. The Greeks liked this for 
two main reasons, actually rather amazing reasons. I can't really necessarily argue their logic from their viewpoint. They wanted the champion style for number one, so there's not a useless loss of life. I mean, think about it this way. If I want to win you in a war, I want all your guys that are tough alive because I want to keep you as slaves. I don't want you to decimate your army and then I get nothing from you. So why should we have everybody die? Let's just bring a champion out. You pick your best guy. I'll pick my best guy. We'll go head to head. But the second reason was the most prominent reason. Because the Greeks believed that the fight was up to the gods anyway. So why have everybody die when the gods were going to figure out who won? Why not just give the gods a chance, have one guy go head to head with another guy? Because it's not up to the guys. It's up to the gods. Well, now that's interesting. Because is that what Goliath had in mind? That it was up to the gods? When he says, I defy Israel, what he's saying is, I stand against all that you believe in. My gods versus your gods. That's a problem for him. David knows exactly what he's saying. Everybody knows what he's saying. He's saying, I disrespect your king. I disrespect you. I disrespect your God. Ah, now we have a different battle. Now it's no longer about men. It's about God. Everyone else is still looking that it's about men. Goliath wants it to be about men, but it's not about men. Now God is irritated. We have a whole, as big as Goliath is, God's bigger. What do we all agree? Take a look at this. Uh, let me, let, before we go into this, I'm going to go into verse 12 here in a second. Let me just make one more side point. Do you remember how Israel so badly wanted an impressive looking king? They didn't necessarily care whether or not he was tracking with God, but they wanted him to look good and to be a good leader on the outside. Remember, they kept talking about he's tall, he's tall, he's tall. Remember that? Do you realize that if your trust is in the outward, there's always going to be somebody better? Because really, Saul was the tallest in Israel, a head taller than everybody else. But when you start fighting the world on their stage, there's always going to be somebody taller. There's always going to be somebody better. If you say, my business will thrive if we have the best CEO that the world can give us, how long is that going to last before there's a better CEO? If you believe my family will be most successful if I have the man in the family, the best leader they could possibly be, better than all the other dads out there, you're trusting in the wrong thing because it doesn't matter if you have the best in the world. I do a lot of weddings and in every wedding I read the same verse. It's this verse, Psalm 127, 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. It doesn't matter if you have the best. It matters who you serve as God. If you have a small company and you are not the best CEO, you are not the most successful person ever, but God wants you to thrive for his glory, guess what you're going to do? thrive for his glory and no one can shut you down it is not about i always have to have the best no church stands because their pastor is the best the best speaker the best leader the best this the best that no it's never that it's whether or not god wants it to thrive god is in charge every time and we have to get our eyes off worldly stuff off appearances and get it right back to where it needs to be which is is god behind it or not make sense all right let's move on verse 12 now david was the son of an ephrathite named jesse who was from bethlehem in judah uh, the former name of bethlehem was ephrath 
So if you're from Ephrath, you're an Ephrathite. Makes sense? Jesse had eight sons. We met them last week. And in Saul's time, Jesse was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons, who we already met by name, had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Okay, that's very important. David worked two part-time jobs, okay? He was a shepherd primarily as his full-time position, but he would be called in to service to Saul for various reasons. What's intriguing is he gets named an armor bearer of Saul, but I believe that's later. As of right now, what is he being called in to do? Play his harp. Do you remember that? He plays the music because Saul is being tormented by an evil spirit sent from God. We talked about that last week. So David gets called in on Saul's bad days. It's not every day. It's not all the time. But he calls him in out of the fields. The reason why this is important is what we're about to read almost makes it sound like Saul doesn't know this guy. He does know this guy. But Saul has a lot of people that work for him. And David's not in front of him every day. But also, in addition to this, I want you to remember, after David was anointed as king of Israel in front of his brothers, which really irritated them, remember, he was sent back to the fields. And he still went back to obscurity, only being called out periodically. But somehow, some way, God needs to get him out of the fields full time and into the palace full time. Does that make sense? It's about to happen right now. It says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. That is almost six weeks. That's a long time. Comes out twice a day, every morning. Who you got? Anybody? What are y'all, chicken? Is that your problem? And he just mocks them for six weeks. Let me ask you this. Where's Saul in all this? Didn't it just say he's terrified? He's not doing anything. Isn't he the biggest? Isn't he the leader? Why is he not stepping out? And then they go, well, you know what? You can't have the king go out to fight. All right, where's the commander of his army? His cousin, Abner. We're going to read about him. Where's that guy? How come he's not stepping up? And an even better question, where's Jonathan? Everybody remember Jonathan? Can we all agree that Jonathan's a stud? All right, Jonathan's amazing. He has faith in God. He does stuff despite what his dad, who's faithless, doesn't believe. He's the one that goes out to fight with his armor bearer, ends up killing people by himself. He's amazing as a warrior. Where's he? This guy comes out and makes fun of Israel for almost six weeks, and nobody steps up. Maybe Jonathan was thinking practically, I can never take this guy. This is ridiculous. And I'm not hearing God call me out on this one. Maybe his dad's holding him back. We have no idea what's going on, but no one will step forward, and that's called an embarrassment. All right? God's not looking so good right now. Now, Jesse, David's dad, says to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring some back some insurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd. It's very important. What did he do? He made sure that the sheep were still cared for, had someone qualified, step in while he's gone. That's important because that's a small task, but he was faithful in it. Look at the next line. He loaded up and set out as his dad had directed. That's obedience. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. There's nothing lamer than shouting a war cry when you're not going to fight. Week after week after week, right? Yeah, what are you going to do? Nothing. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. Hey, everybody. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. But when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. 
Let me ask you this. Are you too busy to hear challenges to God because you're too worried about your own challenges? If someone was saying something bad about God, would it even register with you? Or you're thinking, you know, I got kids to raise, I got a job to run, I got to go, got work to do, I got school to finish up. Are you even alerted to what the world says about God? Does that bother you? Does it irritate you? Because right here, David comes up and it says, David heard it. They all heard it. Thousands upon thousands of men are out there. They follow God, allegedly, but they don't seem to hear what David hears. His ears are attuned to something else. He walks up and is completely offended. And you're about to hear how he reacts to it. Let me ask you the question. Why? Why is David so incensed at what he hears? Here's a guess. And I don't know if this is true. I might be making more of it than needs to be here. So take it with a grain of salt. But check this out. The way I view it, David's life was primarily alone. Didn't have a lot of friends, right? He mostly hung out with sheep. His family didn't like him. Remember, his dad kind of dismissed him. His brothers hated his guts. He lived alone. Who was David's best friend? God. As a matter of fact, he sat out in the field and talked with God. He wrote God's songs. That's why the Psalms are there. And as a matter of fact, he went out there and led under the power of God. We're going to find out. So he would sing to God, write to God, talk to God. God was his only friend. God was his everything. And from that quiet time in that world where God is everything, there are no challengers. It's highly offensive to walk out of that environment, walk to the front lines in the world and have someone screaming insults at God. He couldn't deal with it. He was like, wait, wait, guys, hold up. What did, what did he just say? And they're like, oh, he always says that. What do you mean he always says that? Aren't you guys going to do anything about it? That's where it heads. It says, now the Israelites had been saying to one another, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. They heard it. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. Now, we all know David wins. Next week, we're going to find out how weird the whole marriage thing goes, all right? That is bizarre. We'll find out next. And will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. So David asked the men standing near him, wait, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying, and they told him, well, this is what's going to be done for the man who kills him. Okay, a simple reading of that almost sounds like David's going, hey, what am I going to get? That's not it. How do we know that? Because in the next story, Saul tries to give him his daughter in marriage, and David rejects it. David is not in it for the stuff. David says, who am I? I'm a poor, humble man. I don't deserve to be in the king's family. I don't want your stuff. He's not in it for that. So why is he asking this? Because it seems to me there's a couple questions in his mind. Number one, who does this Philistine think he is? Do you know who he's standing up against? He's standing up against God. And secondly, he goes, wait, you're going to get stuff for killing this. Why are we not just killing this guy anyway? Why are we even talking about what we get? I don't understand this. And also, the author allows it to go, listen, this is going to set up a whole bunch of stuff about David's family. So this is what was promised to the winner. But David doesn't care about that. It says, when Eliab, verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with a man, he burned with anger at him, and he asked, why have you come down here? What and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Is that true? No. Why did he come to the battle lines? Two reasons. Number one, because dad said so. Number two, to bring them supplies, right? So he's a help. Does Eliab see it? No, hates him. Then he says what? I know how conceited you are 
Is David conceited? No. He says, I know how wicked your heart is. Is David's heart wicked? No. As a matter of fact, God says he has a heart like mine, a man after my own heart. So why does Eliab say that? Do people say things about you that aren't true? Why? What's in it for them? What's the benefit for Eliab to degrade his brother? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's sheer hatred and anger, jealousy, and competition. People say a lot of things about us, yeah? People have all kinds of views as to what we are worth and whether or not we matter. They'll say a lot of things about what they think we can or cannot do. But let me ask you this. Are they speaking out of a clear heart? Do they have that perspective? Do they have all the information to evaluate you? If not, then why are you listening to their evaluation? Give me another example. I love garage sales. I love all that kind of stuff, right? And what's funny is when you go to a garage sale, a lot of times you'll run into a savvy seller. And you'll say, hey, how much is this? And they'll look at you and go, how much do you think it is? Right? Because they're going, I'm not going to lowball it, right? I'm going to find out because really it's worth whatever you're willing to pay for it. Isn't that the law of eBay? Everybody knows eBay, right? And you go to a collector. If you ask a collector, well, how much is this worth? They're always going to say it's worth whatever someone will pay for it. That's the law of eBay. It's not about something having a value in and of itself. It's how much will someone evaluate it at? That determines its value. So let me ask you this. How much did Jesus say you're worth? Because he's the one that paid. All right. If someone else is not paying more than Jesus, they're not allowed to evaluate your worth. Are we all in agreement? Because someone did establish your value and it was called the death of the son of God. That is such a high price. No one will be able to exceed it. So we do know your value because someone did pay it and it's already in the books. So when people speak about you, they don't know what they're talking about. God does. Let him speak to your value and your worth. He determines your identity. Amen. Amen. Let's move forward. Now, what have I done, says David? What, I can't even speak? He turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. There we go. Well, that was simple. The kid just walks up to the king. You guys, mellow out. I've got it. And I'm like, what? Wait, what? Who are you? Right? Saul replied, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And he has been fighting man from his youth. All right. What does that mean? It means, hey, little buddy, I appreciate your effort. You got a big heart. All right. Here's the thing. We're looking at it practically. You don't fight. He fights. You're going to lose. No, we're not going to do that. What is the problem with that statement? God is nowhere in the equation. Saul is still being practical Saul. Saul is a good leader, an intelligent man, and a great warrior. But he will not factor God into the matter. Here's how he should have answered the question. David, do you really think that God has called you to do this? We need to go in and talk with the prophet Samuel. And let's find out if God has called you out. Because if God's with you, I'm with you. If God hasn't called you, I'm not letting you go. There's no discussion about that whatsoever. It's all practical. And that's why Saul cannot be king of Israel. David assesses with God in mind. Saul does not, so he's out. You are a boy. He is a giant. Never going to fly. So David plays his game. Check this out. He goes, oh, you want to go practical? All right. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. You see, when a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it 
and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Pause. That's a pretty awesome shepherd. Are we all agreeing? Let's revisit what Lance looks like as a shepherd. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's a lion! I would start hurling sheep at it while I'm backing up, right? Here's another one, right? And I'm running the other direction. All right. Okay, can we make, can we make all the obvious conclusions? Here's a shepherd that lays his life down for the sheep. Oh, look, he's the shepherd of Israel. Lays down. Are we all following all these? I don't want to make the obvious. All right? That's the normal message that everyone teaches. I get that. Pretty obvious. Let's move on. He said, the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Meaning, no different. Bear, lion, Philistine, whatever. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. He's standing in God's way. So who cares what I do? It's not about me. So why are you looking at me? What, it's all about me? I'm a little guy. That doesn't matter. But it's never been about me, Saul. It's about who stands behind me. My, God, my bodyguard is awfully large. It says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, all right, go. Lord be with you. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, man have at it. I don't know what's going to happen. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. Giving someone your clothes was a way in the ancient world to say, may my power rest on you. Well, that's intriguing because do we want Saul's power to rest on David? I think we want David to be with Jesus alone. Yeah. All right. But watch what happens. So David fastened on his sword over the tunic. He tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to these. So he took them off. Oh, intriguing. David can't wear the mantle of Saul. Pretty obvious, yeah? Understand that later we're going to talk about a story between Jonathan and David becoming best friends. Jonathan gives David his tunic and his sword. That's a way of uniting together and saying, may we be bonded. Maybe Saul was trying to get a little credit in case David actually won. Either way, God said, doesn't fit. Do not lead in someone else's gifting. Do not go up and try to be a leader like someone else. It's not going to fly. You wear what God had you wear. You understand? That will work out. Don't try to. That's why we've never tried to duplicate any other church. That's not our goal. Our goal is never to try to go, well, this other church is more successful in the world's eyes than we are. So we want to duplicate them. We don't play that game. Why? It doesn't fit. We wear what we wear. It's just how it goes. If God wants to bless it, God will bless it. If he doesn't, he doesn't. That's his business. Not about duplicating somebody else. And it says, I, so he took them off when he took his, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. All right. Let me show you a photo. See these rocks? How many can you fit in your hands? Oh, it looks like five. All right. This is from the Valley of Elah, this rock. See this rock? Rather large, yeah? It is estimated by most scholars that the stones that they would use were just slightly larger than a baseball. They can hurl them at 90 to 100 miles per hour. He's about to hit Goliath in the forehead. That's what it looks like. Are we all clear? I don't care how big you are. If you have this thing humming at your head, you'll take a nap. Yeah? It will crush your skull at 100 miles per hour. So I had the brilliant idea because I was given a sling. This is how the sling, the sling is designed. You hold on to one end of it. You get it moving. Yeah? You let go of one side, it slings out that way when you have something in it. Now, I did that over in Israel, was not super impressive, okay? Um, however, they need to have them a bit more rounded than this, so this one has a tendency to fall out. Try to do it with little spiky balls so I could shoot it at somebody today. But spiky ball doesn't stay in, so we don't know, we can't use that. So, I'm not going to do any visuals with you. Steve Burdick took this picture and he goes, do you want me to show the video of you shooting it? And I was like, No. But understand, you hang on to one side of it, 
And you can throw it at amazing accuracy as you continue to practice. When I went over there, even on my first time, I was able to at least throw it in the direction I was shooting at. If you practice this thing every day, you're a special marksman with it. That's what David is running in with. Here we go. It says, meanwhile, the Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy Ruddy and handsome. Okay, why are all men really into this guy? They keep going, man, that guy's good looking. You're like, all right, move on. Okay, but it just irritated him, right? And he despised him. He said to David, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Oops. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword, spear, all right, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Yahweh will give you over to me. I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is Yahweh's and he will give all of you into our hands. Okay, that's talking trash. Are we all clear? Okay, that's the I will kill you. And the other guy's like, I will kill you. Right, right. In that accent. That's exactly how they spoke. It was, it was amazing. It was kind of English. Kind of. Not, all right. David's fighting for God's glory. Why are you in service to him? Basic question. Finish it up. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. That's the courage. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, which, by the way, everyone goes, why did he have five stones? And everybody thinks of these cool answers. Here's my answer. You can only fit five in your bag. You're running with five enormous stones in your bag. You don't want more than five. You can't carry them and run freely. It's a practicality matter. So he took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. Yeah? I mean, you hit that really hard. No skull is going to be able to withstand that thing. So he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Pause for one last side note or many side notes. Why is it also impressive that he killed him with a sling? You go, well, cause that's weird. No, something else. Anybody ever remember any other story in the Bible about slings? There's one famous story where Israel had a bit of a civil war with itself and they all went head to head with one tribe. It says that tribe had 700 sling throwers that were left-handed and could it hit a hair at a distance without missing. Anybody know what tribe that was? Benjamin. Benjamin has the corner market on being the best sling guys in all of Israel. Who's from Benjamin? Saul. Not David. It's intriguing that if Saul grew up, he knows very well the stories of his boys are the best at the sling. Here comes a little kid out of the fields, takes out the Philistine with his boy's best weapon. Intriguing. Side note. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. David ran and stood over him, took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from his scabbard. And he, after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. The men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. That's further than Saul ever did. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head, brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Why did he take it to Jerusalem? Because you know, that's a holy city. Not yet. David hasn't taken it yet. The Jebusites live there. They're enemies. Why would you take his head and put it there? Perhaps it was a symbol of what you think we won't do that to you and just hang it there and bail out. Take all of his swords, all the stuff that Goliath had, hides it in his own tent. Those are his gifts, his treasures. He won the battle. But what's intriguing is the sword shows up in our next story with the priests. 
how to get there. It's believed by most scholars that David dedicated it to the one who really won the battle. And he gave Goliath's sword to God, handed it off and took his hands off of it. Later on, he will go through and need that sword, will pick it up, and that's the sword he uses that he said is none is like it. And he uses it when Saul chases him around the desert. It's that same sword that he cuts off the edge of Saul's robe as a symbol. Same sword. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, his cousin and commander of the army, Hey, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I have no idea. The king said, Hey, how about finding out whose son this young man is? Why is he asking that? Maybe he doesn't know him. Or maybe he realizes if he wins, guess whose family is going to marry into his? He might want to know where he comes from. He's like, if this thing goes well, I have a feeling I have a new kid in my family. Hmm. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, with David still holding the dripping Philistine head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him, and David said, Oh, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. I wonder if that's the first time Saul realized that now there was a young man that was a mighty warrior from Judah. Remember, the real king of Israel was supposed to come not from Benjamin, but from the tribe of Judah. The writing is on the wall. It's about to get ugly right after this. Let me close out the message by a couple simple points. Do not let anyone tell you what your value is. God determines that. Number two, if you are a child of God, then you are not like everybody else. You are being redeemed and being transformed into the image of your Father in heaven. The resources of the kingdom are at your disposal. The authority that Jesus Christ has... He exerts on your behalf. Being a son or daughter of the king is different. And yet we walk around and allow our lives to be pushed around by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It shouldn't be that way. Because you serve the same God. David does. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. May we be filled with faith today that you are good that you are powerful that you are mighty be glorified in us as we submit our identity to you in jesus name we pray